You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, as we continue in uh, our study of 1 Corinthians 7, let's go to God in prayer and uh, prepare our hearts to hear from Him today. And so, God, I pray as we go to this text, uh, think of Proverbs 3, let not kindness or truth lead you, bind them around your neck. Uh, Lord, I pray that I would have kindness and truth as we speak to a very sensitive, painful topic this morning, uh, that we'd have great hope, Lord, in your redemptive power, God, um, in our most intimate relationships. And uh, we're just so thankful, Jesus, that you never cast us out and you never leave us or forsake us. Teach us from your word now, in your name, amen. I have kind of a a weird hobby, it's not really a hobby, but I I like collecting uh, announcements about divorces from famous people because it's interesting to see how they've changed over time. And I've noticed a trend, and and the trend is, is this, they've gotten more positive over time. Um, and, and tried to spin them as a good thing. And, and one of the ones that struck me a few years ago, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, he announced that he and his uh, then-wife Mackenzie were getting a divorce. And, and it was an overwhelmingly positive statement, but he said, you know, if, if my wife and I had known we would separate 25 years later, we would have done it all again. Bezos was overwhelmingly positive about the marriage. It was a beautiful thing. It was a joyful thing. And in spite of all the good of the marriage, it just wasn't a realistic thing to last forever. It was just for a season. And I think that's a very common sentiment in our culture, that marriage can be beautiful, it can be loving, it can be life-giving, and yet it's naive to think that marriage would last. People change. People grow apart. And so this ideal that we've sort of created, you know, until death do us part, it's just that. It's just idealistic. And that's interesting to me because that sentiment isn't new. You might remember this scene in Matthew 19. Someone approaches Jesus and asks him, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And apparently some men thought they could. Response, Jesus explains God's design for marriage and how God intends marriage to be this lifelong commitment and that divorce is only permissible in a narrow set of circumstances, not a a huge set of circumstances. And, it, and, and Jesus' qualifications around marriage were, were far higher commitment and far fewer exceptions than, than his disciples thought. And then Jesus ends by saying, you might remember, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And I love the disciples' response because they hear this teaching on marriage and immediately what do they say? If such is the case of a man with his wife... It is better not to marry. Jesus, you're being a little too idealistic. The disciples hear God's design and think, if that's the case, I'm out. And that's how many young people are responding today. 2019, the marriage rate in America dropped to a historic low. And it's interesting, as I look at people my age and younger, they want romantic relationships. They even want committed relationships. It's just so often they'd rather hook up or shack up than sign up for marriage. And even those who do get married go in with this much 
more realistic sense that eh, things might not work out, and they probably won't. Uh, I read a recent survey that 40% of millennials sign prenuptial agreements prior to entering their marriages. That's a really high percentage. And now, here's the thing. I completely understand people's trepidation and hesitancy about entering into lifelong commitment because people are not stupid. They're not stupid. They know the data. That we live in a culture where 40 to 45% of first marriages end in divorce and 60% of second marriages end in divorce and 70% of third marriages end in divorce. Uh, but here's the tension we feel if we follow Jesus, right? We already know the blueprint. We know how God designed the thing and he intends the thing to be a lifelong commitment, a for better or worse, until death do us part kind of thing. And we make that vow to God and to each other. We, we know that it could be hard. We know we should stick it out. But, but so often, I think the sentiment among Christians is, okay, just stick it out and be miserable. We know we have to stick it out to glorify God, even if we're in a miserable marriage, but just settle for misery. And as Christians, you can have sort of a, a fatalism about marital unhappiness and misery in the long term. And I remember when Kishela and I were first going to uh, premarital counseling, we got this all the time. All the time. For, you know, it's an interesting thing when you get engaged, you get a lot of advice, a lot of unsolicited advice about marriage. And, and we got a lot of advice about marriage. And people be like, hey, marriage is great, but just to let you know, marriage is really horribly hard. And they would just, I'm like, thank you, I didn't, I didn't ask for that advice, but just good to know. And then, and then people would come up with years, like, listen, year one is going to be the hardest year of your life. I just need to let you know that. I'm like, okay, thanks, man, good to know. And then another person came up to us and said, hey, listen, year two, that's the hardest year of your life, okay, in marriage. And I was like, okay, I don't like where this is going, right? And then one guy came up to me, like, this is all within a week period, this is happening. One guy's like, listen, year seven will be the hardest. I'm like, that sounds almost biblical. Like, right? like something about the seventh year of marriage is the worst. And people would use this phrase. They would talk to us. They'd be like, listen, I need to warn you about the desert years of marriage because they're coming, the desert years. And then Kishan and I were looking at each other like, the desert? Like, we're going to be like Israel wandering in the wilderness in our, our marriage and like just under God's judgment and just it's going to be horrible. And I remember talking to our counselors about that. I'm like, do we have to go through desert years? And they're like, no, you don't have to. You can go through a desert five minutes, but you don't have desert years, no? And so, so here's the tension, right? Do we break up a marriage to be happy, or do we stick in a marriage and be miserable, right? I think that's often the tension we feel. And, and listen, I, have, um, I just want to be helpful this morning and just say maybe there's a third option if you're in a hard marriage. Maybe there's a third option when marriage gets hard, and maybe that's that like God is actually actively involved in your marriage, that he wants you to have a thriving marriage, and that he actually has the power to change your marriage, regardless of how long you've been married. And now here's the good news. If both of you trust in Jesus, like God is very invested in the health of that marriage. Here's the amazing thing that Paul says today. If one of you trusts in Jesus, God is very invested in the health of that marriage. And so overcoming this tension between, you know, miserable together or happy apart, I think Paul gives us the third way here, and it all has to do with just being hopeful that, as Pastor Greg says, 
Jesus is in the room in our marriages. There's more than two parties here. Jesus is at work. Two things I want to show you from the passage. One, God's work in reconciling spouses, and two, God's work in renewing spouses. If Jesus is in your marriage, he is committed to helping you work things out together. If Jesus is in your marriage, he's committed to renewing your spouse. Here's the cool thing Paul says. He's actually committed to renewing your spouse through you and your example. Okay? So that's where we're going. Uh, Hopefully this is helpful, whether you're thinking about getting married, whether you're married, whether you encourage someone that's married. uh, but, But let's start with reconciliation. If you're going through a rough patch in your marriage, let me ask you a question. If you knew that in three to four years, your marriage would improve radically if both of you committed to working on it, would it change your perspective on your marriage? Like if you just knew, okay, in three to four years, we're going to be in a very different place. Well, the data says that two out of every three couples on the brink of divorce who make that investment to work on their marriage end up in that place, in a dramatically better place. Go from, I thought we were going to divorce to, wow, we are in a much better place in that three to five year period. And that's just everyone. Christians have a much greater reason to believe that their marriage can improve if both people submit to Jesus in it. And that's because God's working in it. Let's see what Paul says here to the married people at Corinth in the midst of their marital difficulties. First, God's working in, in helping couples work things out. He says this, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In chapter 7, Paul addresses all of these questions about sex and marriage that the Corinthians had. And he keeps shifting between different groups of people, right? In verses 1 through 7, he speaks to married people and the issue of physical intimacy in marriage. And then he goes and speaks to the unmarrieds in verses 8 and 9 who are wondering whether they should get married. And now he jumps back to the marrieds in verse through 10. And these are married Christians who just don't really, really want to be married anymore. Now, we don't know much about why these believers want to get divorces, uh, but we do know that they lived in a culture much like ours where it's very, very, very easy to get a divorce. Roman culture was very permissive about divorce. You could do it through verbal agreement. One person could unilaterally say, I'm done. Men divorce frequently. Women divorce frequently. Uh, The Stoic philosopher Seneca lamented that few women seem to blush at divorce and that women reckon their years by the number of their husbands. And I'd say to to Seneca, you could have said the same thing about husbands too, Seneca, in that culture. Uh, But Paul says Christians should have a very different mindset. He says, here's my advice, wives and husbands. Wives don't separate, husbands don't divorce. Now, now we need to clarify terms here because when we use the term separation and divorce in our culture, we usually mean different things, don't we? Separation often refers to some temporary suspension of the marriage. Divorce refers to the legal termination of the marriage or the dissolution of the marriage. When Paul uses these terms separation and divorce, he means the same thing. He just means ending a marriage. That's what he's That's what he's talking about. And we know that because down in in, uh, verse 15, he uses that word separate, and it's clear he's talking about divorce. So he's just talking about people opting out of marriage. That's what he's talking about. Ending a marriage either legally or just by living apart, whatever that means, trying to dissolve it. And Paul says, don't do this. And he says, it's not my command, it's Jesus' command. He says, not I, but the Lord make this command. And, And what Lord is that? 
Jesus, yes, thank you, Sunday school answer. I always give you an easy one with the first time, you know, you talk back to me. It's, oh yeah, just, just, you know, we start with Sunday school answer, okay? So it's Jesus. Now, why would Paul make this clarification? Why would he say, not I, but the Lord say this? Well, he's not trying to draw a distinction between his authority and Jesus' authority, okay? He's not saying like, now guys, I have no authority to speak to you, so I'm just going to appeal to Jesus. That's not what he's doing, because guess what? He's about to appeal to his authority, which he thinks is Jesus' authority to tell him to do things, okay? So he's not trying to draw a distinction between his authority and Jesus' authority. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, I don't have to tell you what to do in this area because you already know Jesus has told you. These these believers were familiar with the teaching of Jesus. Paul is familiar with the teaching of Jesus. And and so what what teaching of Jesus is Paul referring to here regarding divorce? Well, I think it's Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 where Jesus basically says the same thing two times. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And and he says basically the same thing in Matthew 19. Now, in the context, here's who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to people who want to divorce for the purpose of remarriage, right? They want to opt out because there's greener pastures, there's an upgrade, there's a better level, right? Somewhere out there. And that's often why people divorce in our culture too, right? And so people were looking for easy reasons to get out of their marriage. And Jesus says, don't do it. And he says, here's the issue. The issue isn't just divorce in this case. It's divorce to what? To remarry, right? You got to keep that in mind when you go to Paul's commentary on it. That's Jesus' primary concern. And it's interesting. Jesus says the issue is this. That if you divorce to remarry, you're actually committing adultery when you remarry the next person. And Jesus gives a very narrow exception clause here. He says only in cases of sexual infidelity or immorality. That's the one exception clause here that gives you an out and a a permission on Jesus by Jesus to to divorce. But he says, otherwise you're committing adultery. Now, Now, here's what's interesting is Jesus' assumption about marriage is this. That a, wife, a, a believing wife can say, I don't want to be married, and a believing husband can say, I don't want to be married, and yet God says, in my eyes, you're still married. You see that? This is an interesting thing. In Matthew 19, remember what Jesus says? What God has joined together, let no man separate. So who joins people together in marriage? God. If you are married, that's an astonishing thing to think about, that God actually married you. That's what I tell people when I officiate weddings. Like, I'm not marrying you today. The state of California is not marrying you today. God is marrying you, and God is actually creating a spiritual covenant between you. And this is just kind of an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That covenant's real. It exists in God's eyes And so even if I opt out and she opts out, God hasn't opted out. He's saying, nope, you're still married to each other even if you don't think you are. So if you go remarry people, you're actually committing adultery and breaking the bond. That's that's what Jesus is saying here. And and that's why this issue of divorcing for the purpose of remarriage is such a serious thing. And that helps to explain the logic of what Paul is saying here. And he's talking specifically to believing spouses. He's not just talking about divorce, but divorce to remarriage. And what does Paul say here? He, he says that basically don't divorce, but it's interesting. He says, if you do divorce, 
Notice what he says. He says, these are believers. They're getting a divorce. We don't know if the divorce is, is for good reasons or bad reasons or whatever. But he says, sometimes people divorce. And he says, don't kick them out of Christian community. They're still brothers and sisters in the faith. Okay, they've separated. But he says, if you're in that position, what's his counsel? Remain unmarried or what? Or reconcile, work it out. There are times, and Paul doesn't explain why, whether this is legitimate time, an illegitimate time, whatever, where believers just can't live together, they get apart, and Paul says, okay, you can still be in the community of faith, you can still participate together, but here are your options. Either remain in the state or what? Work it out. Do you see how Paul's application builds on Jesus' principle here? The principle is this, that God sees that bond is still intact in this particular situation, That covenant has not been dissolved. So either stay in the state where you're separate or figure out how to work things out. You know what that tells me? God really, really cares about couples figuring out how to work it out. He really, really cares. That even if I don't feel invested in my relationship and my wife doesn't feel invested in my relationship, guess who still feels invested in the relationship? God. He's like, no, no, no. I created this thing. It's real. Come back. Come back. Even if you can't stand each other and you're apart and you don't feel like you're even married anymore, no, I still view this this way. So if you just can't live, okay, you can live over here, but the only option is work back, see if you can do it. God really cares about us working things out. Here's the good news. If God cares that much, do you think God's going to give you the power to work it out? Yeah. That's the good news, right? There's always three people in your marriage, right? It's you, your spouse, and Jesus. And Jesus always wants to draw you back closer to each other. And so how do you pursue this? How do you work things out in marriage and pursue marital oneness? I think a good place to start is what kills marital oneness. You know, when we think about what destroys marriages, I mean, the the big three are the, the big evil A's, right? The big three A's, right? Adultery, abuse, abandonment. Those are the ones that come to mind. Things just absolutely destroy, and they do. And for some of you, that's the experience. It's It's awful, right? But for many couples, those aren't the presenting symptoms that are going to kill the marriage. There are just little indicators that get bigger bigger over time that the relationship is getting corrosive and it's in danger of tearing apart. Do you know what the big four warning lights on the marital dashboard are? Uh, John Gottman, he's a marriage researcher. He's done fascinating decades-long research on marriage and what tears marriages apart. And he claims that he can sit down with a couple for five minutes and predict whether they will get a divorce with over 90% accuracy. 90% based on four factors. You want to know what they are? Here are the four big warning lights in your marriage. First one he says is criticism. Criticism. And criticism attacking the other person's character or personality. You always do this. You are like that. The, the more frequent that is, the more, uh, 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 right? Warning light. Next one is contempt. What is contempt? It's a powerful emotion. You know what it is? It's anger plus disgust. That's contempt, right? And we know what contempt looks like. It comes out as insults, right? Oh, you idiot. Comes out as rolling your eyes. Comes out as, again? That's That's contempt. The next one is defensiveness. You will not give an inch or admit you're wrong ever. Do you know what that means? The marriage is a war and it's trench warfare. And neither of us can budge 
because neither of us want to lose ground. That's defensiveness. I'm not wrong, you are. You're not wrong. Um, no, I'm right. I'm, you know, you get the idea. You know what it looks like. I don't have to explain these things to you if you're married. Come on. Next one is stonewalling. And stonewalling, you know what that is? Just withdrawing to avoid conflict. Yeah, I'm not even going to discuss this. I'm just out. Or it's that low-level emotional punishment, right? It's the simmer after the argument, and I got to be disapproving of you for the next few days, so I'm going to be emotionally cold, just turning that thermostat down, right? Because even if we've resolved it, I need to let you know things still aren't okay. The more those features are there, the more Gottman say, these are real warning signs that no matter what commitments you've made to each other, you can't stand each other and you don't want to be together, and you are very likely on the way out at that point, okay? Now, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying that it's possible to be in a marriage, and this is how marriages just tear apart, because you just treat each other bad. And you do that, and you put enough, take enough withdrawals from the bank account in each other's lives, and eventually you're like, there's nothing left to withdraw. I'm done. How do you fight against these... Um, Gottman gives tips. I think the Bible gives better advice than Gottman, and so I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says, how to replace these things, okay? So, first one, instead of criticism, replace that with gentle requests. Paul says very clearly in marriage, no harshness. No harshness toward your spouse. You know what that means? Instead of you statements, you start with I statements, okay? Right? Instead of you always say, I'm feeling anxious about this. I'm struggling with this. Can we talk about it? Instead of you need to plan better, say, I, I think we need to communicate more about planning. Can we talk about that? You see the difference? Just changing you to I because you is about control, isn't it? You is about maintaining power in the relationship. You need to da 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 I is what? It's vulnerable. It's gentle. It's restrained saying, here's how I'm thinking about this. Here's how I'm feeling about this. Here's what I want in our relationship. If you just work through those three, and tone is everything, right? You can say hard things if you just say them calmly. I statements, right? Next, instead of contempt, the Bible would say show honor. Show honor. How can I honor my spouse today? Greg talks about this all the time. In your marriage, there's a king and a queen. How do you treat a king and a queen? Honor honor, dignity, right? Not like a person you can't stand to be around. And, and practically, it just means showing verbal appreciation to your spouse every day, even if you're really annoyed with them. Hey, thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me know. Thanks for communicating about that. Thanks for cleaning up after dinner. Thanks for making dinner. Thanks for dealing with that with the kids, right? What are you doing? You're making the good deposits, right? You're changing the atmosphere of the marriage. Next one, instead of defensiveness, this one's huge. Quick confession and forgiveness. Quick. Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That doesn't mean solve problems before bedtime, okay? It's a terrible time to do it. It means solve them right away. If you're mad, got to talk about it. Got to negotiate. Got to talk it out. And then you got to own what you can own. Because here's the thing in marriage I think that kills reconciliation is when you feel like the most important thing is for me to be seen as right. Right? Because when that's my animating thing, it's trench warfare and I can't give an inch, right? 
And, and you just kind of go to crazy town when you're arguing and the goal is just to win, don't you? Don't you? you? Yes, you do. You're not agreeing with me right now, but you do. Let me prove it to you. Okay, look. I remember early in our marriage, Kashan and I were arguing about something. I can't even remember what it was, but I do remember that I was right. <laughs> I was right. She was wrong, and she needed to know that she was wrong. And so we're arguing about this, and then we're driving to a Bible study I'm going to lead, and we're still arguing about this, and still I have to stop for gas. And I stop for gas, and I get out of the car, and I'm angry, and I leave the car running. And I go, and I take out the pump, the gas, and I start to pump it, and Cashel very sweetly, right, she's, she's supplying number one. Honey, I, I think the car is still running. You probably don't want to put the gas, pump the gas. And I thought, I can't admit I'm wrong right now. I can't give an inch to this woman because she needs to know that she's wrong. And so I thought, how can I justify the fact that I am pumping gas in a car that's still running? And I'm like, think, Jeff, think, 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 think. And then I had this epiphany and I thought, NASCAR. I know this happens in NASCAR. They, they keep that car running when they pump the gas. It's fine to keep the car running when you pump the gas. They do it in NASCAR all the time. And I kid you not, I turn to my wife and I'm like, honey, they do that all the time in NASCAR. I've watched about this many minutes of NASCAR uh, in my life and it was great. My wife just goes, right, just <laughs> not talking to you, right? Now, that is just symptomatic of what defensiveness does. Because defensiveness says, I own 2% of this, you own 98%, and until you own your 98%, there's no way I'm talking about my 2%. What's, how does the gospel speak into that? Um, let's see. Who was uh, 100% wrong in our relationship with Jesus? Us. Who was 100% right? Who went first in reconciling? <laughs> Jesus, okay, if that's what Jesus did with me, I think I can own my 1% of this, right? Don't, don't call it your 1%, though. Just pro tip there, okay? Don't, don't use percentages. Finally, stonewalling. How do, you, how do you overcome that barrier in marriage? I would say this. If, if you just feel like you're at an impasse where there's no way we can work this out, do you know what you do? You stop talking to each other and you start talking to Who? God, God. Paul gives us this principle in last week's passage, 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about couples being apart for the purpose of mutual prayer and then coming back together. And I think an application there could be that if you're struggling with intimacy with your spouse, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever, you just, you're just at an impasse where you can't connect. You say, you know what? We need to stop talking to each other about this because we're going nowhere. We're each going to talk to Jesus. Here's two things that are helpful about that. Jesus is really good at dealing with you and your stuff. And Jesus is better at dealing with your spouse's stuff than you are. And so if you go and agree to do that together, you're going to do something, and, and you're going to do it in response to Jesus, not in response to your spouse. Does that make sense? It's going to reframe the way that you approach this thing, because now we're remembering Jesus is in the room. We better bring him into this conversation. Jesus, what do you think about what's going on, Right? And, and he'll sort you out, believe me. He will. That's the first thing that's helpful is you're going to the right source. Two, you're identifying the right enemy. 
Because you know in marital conflict, you know who your enemy is not? Your spouse. Your spouse is not your adversary. The devil is your adversary. And the devil hates your marriage and has a terrible plan for your marriage. The first thing Satan attacks is our relationship with God. The second thing he attacks is the relationship between Adam and Eve. He is committed to sowing seeds of division between you. So when you're at an impasse, you know what it means? Someone's working overtime and it's Satan. And so go pray against him. And do you see how that reframes your marital conflict now? It's not about me defeating this person. It's about us doing spiritual battle and not letting Satan drive a wedge between us and we've identified the right enemy. See how that reframes the way you're going to come back together? So, four practices for pursuing oneness. Here's the thing. If you do that by faith, God will bless it. He will. He will bless it because he's more committed to your oneness than you are. He created the relationship. He wants you to be reconciled. So we're just, we're just moving with the divine momentum already in us when we work that out. Does that make sense? All right. That's God's work in reconciliation. And maybe you hear all that and say, great, Jeff, but you haven't met my spouse. What if God had the power to change your spouse? What if as you submitted to God, God might have big plans to change your spouse through you without you trying to change your spouse at all, but just God changing you through your spouse? Jeff, what are you talking about? Well, let's look at this passage. This is interesting. Starting in verse 12. Paul says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now what Paul is saying there, we already have seen it in the context. Here's what he's saying. I just spoke to an issue that Jesus already spoke to, right? Now I'm going to speak to an issue that Jesus did not speak to. And that's the issue of what happens when you have two unbelievers and one of them becomes a believer and the other one does not. How do you interact in that marriage? Well, Paul tells us, he gives us his commands, his counsel, and and adds now uh, his own new teaching. He says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Here's what seems to have been happening in the Corinthian church, right? You have people starting to to come into this community and they're hearing about Jesus and one of the spouses says, I'm in, I believe. And the other one goes, "Uh uh-uh. And this creates a problem now because the believing spouse is thinking like, I need to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and frankly, this guy over here is holding me back now. They're, they're kind of weighing me down and, and, and actually they're kind of a corrupting influence in my life. And you can see how they might think this, right? Because Paul just talked about sex and sexual morality and, and the danger of having sex outside of God's boundaries. And you think, man, I, this guy, Mary, he's a pagan. And I just brought him in to this marriage. I have this pagan influence in my most intimate relationship and he doesn't trust Jesus. I got to get out of this. So what's the Corinthians' concern here? The Corinthians' concern is, is this, that my unbelieving partner will corrupt me. They're going to corrupt my relationship with Jesus. And what Paul does here is beautiful. He flips the whole thing around. And he says, no, it's not that your partner's going to corrupt you. Actually, God's going to use you to sanctify your partner. 
the, the prevailing, more powerful influence in the marriage, it isn't this guy's non-Christianness. It's your connection to Jesus. That's the influential power. Listen to what he says. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, what does Paul mean by this, that a believer and an unbeliever in a marriage and somehow holiness is passed to them? Well, it does not mean that the minute you have a mixed marriage that the other person gets saved automatically. They're not sanctified in that way. And it's clear because Paul will go on to say in verse 16, you don't know whether you'll save your husband. You don't know you'll save your wife. So this isn't salvation that he's talking about here. So what is he talking about? I, I think the best analogy I can think of is it's kind of like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was set apart by God, right? But that doesn't mean that anyone in the nation of Israel was necessarily a believer. They still had to trust in, in God for themselves, right? And yet, were there benefits to being part of the nation of Israel? Amazing benefits. You were part of the visible people of God. You had the temple, the presence of God. You heard the prophets and the word of God. You had a proximity to God that no other nation did, but you still had to choose to believe, right? So what's Paul saying here? Here's the analogy. Um, marriage is a one flesh union, right? And, and our union with Jesus is a one spirit union. So, well, if I'm one spirit with Jesus and then my partner's one flesh with me, they are brought into this proximity to Jesus that's unique, where Jesus has a remarkable power to get to them and reach them and change them. And that goes for kids too, right? And you see it all the time that people in mixed marriages, when they stay together, they often start coming to church together start acting like a Christian couple just because they're staying together because the dominant influence in the relationship is Jesus. And you also see the kids often grow up to love Jesus as well because there's this set-apartness just by Jesus being in the family. It's an amazing thing, and what a comforting thing. What an encouraging thing to think that Jesus has power to work in that way. Now, there's no guarantee it'll happen. There's no guarantee because look what Paul goes on to say. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You see this all the time. I have, you have a couple and one person comes to Jesus and that event creates an absolute crisis in the marriage. Because the person who comes to Jesus they are not the person they were. They are different. And then the spouse looks at that person and what do they say? What have you done with my spouse? What have you done with my husband? What have you done with my wife? I don't even know this person anymore. And I've seen this happen time and again where there's a crisis point for that person in the relationship and they either say, I love who this person is and I'm gonna stick it out and often, that's the first step in them becoming a Christian too. Or, I want nothing to do that and I'm gone. And they leave because of that person's newfound faith. 
And that's the situation that Paul is talking about here. And he says, listen, when that happens, you are not enslaved to that marriage. Basically, what he's saying to the Christian is, you do not, when you are abandoned, deserted in this situation, basically because of your faith, you are not responsible to hunt this person down, make them stay married, make them stay in the marriage with you. They serve a different Lord than you. You can't do that. Let them go. Let them go. You're not bound. And I think not enslaved, the way that's used later in the text, uh, in, in verse 39, it means you're free, not just free from the marriage, but free to remarry as well. Because he uses similar language with widows being free to remarry. Uh, that's another sermon for another time to talk about all of that. But, but here's the point. Um, God has an amazing way of working through these relationships. Now, what this doesn't mean, if you are a believer, is to say, wow, God's really going to sanctify all my choices, so I should just go marry an unbeliever and make them a believer. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, if you find yourself in this situation, take hope. And I think that's what Paul means by what he says next. He says, God has called you to peace for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, there's two ways of interpreting this. There's two ways. There's a negative way where we interpret it in light of what he just said about letting the spouse go. Say, hey, let him go. God has called you to peace. Just be at peace with the fact that they've left you. How do you know if you're going to be able to win them back and save them? And it's sort of a negative view. I think that's the wrong view. I think... 15 was a parenthesis, and now he's returning to the point he made earlier, which is this. He's saying, stay in the marriage. Stay in if the person consents because God has called you to be at peace. In other words, you don't create disruption in the marriage by trying to leave it. You try to live as husband and wife, be at peace, and then these questions are positive. They're saying, no, stay in the marriage because who knows what God will do? Who knows if they will not use your example to bring the person to faith? Does that make sense? It's a different way of looking at it. That's been the predominant view throughout human history. It's an optimistic view of those questions, right? No, stick it out. Be at peace, even with your unbelieving spouse, because you don't know how God will use your example. Now, here's the good news for us. Maybe you're there sitting, sitting next to your spouse and they're not a believer. Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, Jeff, I'm the real believer in the relationship. <laughs> they're nominal. They're, they're not that serious. Guess what? God can use you anyway to light their heart on fire for Jesus. And it's not going to be through you coaching and Phariseeing them to death to be a better Christian. It's just going to be you without a word changing and following Jesus. And they're going to take notice because you're different. Here's the implication. That God's plan is often to work through you to spiritually renew your spouse, whether they believe or are yet to believe. Here's the beauty. If you feel like your spouse isn't passionate about Jesus, the best thing you can do is get passionate about Jesus. Okay? It is not, oh God, change my spouse, change my spouse, change my spouse. Because the minute you pray that, they know how you're looking at them. Like, you're someone who needs to change. And praise God, I'm in this relationship to change you. Spouses love that, by the way, when you have that mentality toward them. Just love it. No, it's to say this, God, how can I be the kind of Christ follower that is compelling and attractive to my spouse? And I have noticed when I just do things out of conscience toward Jesus, my family follows. As I have gotten more consistent in meeting with Jesus in the morning, 
I don't have to tell my family to get up and meet with Jesus. They just do it more often now and more often and more often just because they see that it's my priority. Lead by example and ask yourself, that thing I long to see in my spouse, do I see it in me? Because if I don't, me first, I'm going to repent and then I trust that God's going to use that. Does that make sense? Now let's end with this because this kind of text raises tons of difficult, painful questions. And like, I just know as your pastor, like in a room like this, there are just so many complicated, messy stories related to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I want to give you five principles for thinking through this. And and I pray that they're helpful to you regardless of your marital state. Here's the first thing I would say is this. When you're in doubt, remain as you are. If you're asking, eh, should I divorce? Should I remarry? What should I do? Should I stay in my marriage? If it's not clear what you should do, don't make a decision. Stay as you are. If you're married, stay in the marriage. That's what Paul's going to go on to say in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Remain as you are. Where God has called you. And so unless you have clear biblical permission or reasons If you're doubting, stay, wait. It hasn't become clear yet. Does that make sense? So if you're unmarried, stay unmarried. If you're married, stay married. That's number one. Number two, if you are married, don't go it alone. Listen, I have so much empathy for those of you who come out of broken family systems and have never seen a healthy marriage in your life. And I cannot tell you how much premarital counseling I have done with couples where they say, in our entire family system, we are the one healthy relationship. We're it. Everything else is wreckage. Like, the odds are stacked against you when you're coming out of that. You need to surround yourself with healthy marriages. Lots of them who are cheering you on, who are helping you, who are coaching you. Proverbs 18 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We could say any married couple that isolates themselves. Bad idea. Because the marriages you're around are the marriages you'll become like. They're the ones that are going to coach you. They're the ones who are going to give you an objective perspective. They're the ones who are rooting for your marriage. And you need that to stick it out. You need to see how a good husband or wife treat each other with gentleness and kindness. You know, social scientists say that divorces cluster. Did you know that? It's like a social contagion. That if all your friends get a divorces, do you know what you're way more likely to do? get a divorce, okay? Get around healthy, solid, long-term marriages. Get around an older couple and just say, teach me how to be like you when we grow up, right? How do we do this? Number three, and this is a hard one to touch on briefly, but when you're considering your options, seek wise counsel. Listen, I want to fight for every marriage in the room. I don't want to see any marriage get divorced. Divorce is tragic. That doesn't mean there aren't times to divorce. The Bible gives permission for divorce in a number of cases. Paul gives one here. Jesus gives one. In fact, Paul talks about such cases here in verse 15, which means there are actions and cases where a marriage is destroyed and you have permission to leave. And frankly, there's times you should leave. Okay? If you are endangered, you should not stay in that house. You should get out. Jesus fled danger. Paul fled danger. You should flee danger and get out 
and get us to help you think through. Now, sometimes that could be mended. Sometimes you should not go back. This is case by case. Sometimes divorce is an option. Sometimes it's an option you need to take for your own survival. But when do I divorce? When do I remarry? These are things you should be thinking about with the people of God. Next one. For us as a family of God, when you are engaging with divorced people, please avoid superiority or assumptions about their situation. One of the dangers of having a high value on the permanence of marriage is that we create a culture where we stigmatize divorce to such an extent that anytime we hear someone has a divorce, we just hear failure. Failure, failure, failure. And here's the problem with that. We have no idea what that person's situation is. And let me tell you, I've counseled a lot of people through a lot of broken marriages, and the situations are brutal. Brutal. And do not assume that you know what happened. And do not think, well, if I was in that situation, I, uh, 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 uh. Okay? You don't know how fault worked, what the grounds were, what the permissibility is, what the context is. Don't make assumptions. Don't be superior. Does that make sense? Don't do it. And here's the fifth thing, and, and the most important thing to say. And I, I know this is true because this is such an intensely painful thing to talk about. There are times when we divorce and we look back and say, you know what? I did not have biblical justification to do it, and I know it. Here's what you need to hear. Clearly, God cares deeply about the permanence of marriage, but divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. Even if you divorced without biblical grounds, this is not the, the black mark on the rest of your life and the stain that can't be washed away because there is no stain that can't be washed away. This does not determine who you are. This does not determine everything about your future. Jesus says your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. They are gone. They are gone. This does not define who you are in Jesus. This does not define everything about your future you are new in Christ. His mercies are new every morning, and you need to live into that and not live in shame, okay? And we should be a culture here that understand that and embrace that and embody the gospel to hurting and broken people because I realize the pain from this, the pain from divorce is worse than the death of your spouse in many ways. This is real, raw pain, and here's the beauty of the gospel is it's the one relationship we have where we have an vin invincible assurance that it's, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and that I will never cast you out. Even when we run, even when we're faithless, God upholds his end of the marital covenant beautifully forever. Forever. I love Hosea 2 where Israel Runs from God, runs from God, runs from God, and God says, guess what? I'm so committed. I'm not just going to forgive you. I'm going to remarry you and renew you and then make you the kind of spouse who's responsive to me so we can live forever, happily ever after. The gospel is the ultimate happily ever after, and he will not fail you, even if your spouse did, even if you failed your spouse. And that's the good news, that that relationship there will never be divorce. Let's pray. So God, I just pray your healing presence would be on um, your people. 
Lord, I don't particularly enjoy talking about some of these things because I know um, the feelings they provoke. But God, thank you that you are a healer, you are a redeemer, you are a renewer. And that, that Lord, um, you never cast us out. And so I pray we live into the freedom we'd have in you. Lord, would you comfort the afflicted right now? Um, and God, would you, would you give conviction to those who are just not investing in their marriages the way they should? And would they see that, that you um, are more committed to their marriage than they are? And, and that, Lord, in response to you, um, we, would, we would put in the work to get these relationships right. Lord, not just for our own happiness, but for your renown and glory. Pray it in your name.